every time we go to Red Robin, I'm always amazed. We, we went there a little bit after Carolyn's birthday last week because you get those birthday deals. And, and we sat down with the boys, and they've got so many gourmet burgers. So wonderful. But I'm always amazed at how small a view my boys have of what's good food. We go to Red Robin, and you know what they order every time? Mac and cheese. <laughs> Mac and cheese. And, and it's frustrating as a parent because you taste it, and you're like, this tastes just like craft. You know, I could have paid 99 cents for a box and fed them for four days, and we just paid four bucks for this. They got a very small view of what's good food, and they miss out on the, those gourmet burgers. Okay, not such a big deal when it comes to food, right? Big deal when it, when it comes to life, when we have a small view, especially if we have a, a small view of God. And where I want to go tonight is we look at Stephen and what he shared with the Israelites when he was put on trial, is if, if we have a small view of God, it's going to mean we're going to miss out on some of what he wants to do in our lives. That's the unfortunate reality. If you and I have a small view of God, we're going to miss out on some of what He wants to do in our lives. The good news is if we have a big view of God and His character, He's going to do things in our lives for Him and His kingdom that we could never imagine. Stephen's an example of that, a big view of God. The Israelites that he talked to, unfortunately, were an example of the other. How many of you heard of the preacher A.W. Tozer from the 1920s to the 1960s? Awesome preacher, spoke with a very prophetic voice to the church in America in his time, calling them back to the Word of God, back to God's ways, uh, uh, love and a worship of God. He said the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. And that's what we're saying here. You say, well, what, what does that look like? Can you make that practical for me? How does this small view of God, big view of God work? And I thought of a couple ways before we get into the story of Stephen. One, if you have a small or limited view of how much God loves you, if you question that or doubt that, or don't have a full appreciation that Jesus, God in flesh, suffered and died for you, and he would have done it if you were the only one, if that has never brought you to your knees in deep appreciation, if you're not convinced that God loves you, you've got a small view of God's love, then why would you go all out for God? Because really, you're going to doubt if it's, if it's worth it. If, if God doesn't really love me all that much, then why, why should I pour out everything for Him? That, that's one way this works. Or what about His power? If you really, at the core of your being, don't believe that God's in control, you, you're filled with worry that your world is out of control and he's, he's not steering it where he wants to steer it, then why would you step out and attempt anything big for God? Because really at your core, you're, you're going to doubt, does he really have the power to, to pull this off? Or is this destined to fail? Those, those are just two examples of what we're talking about. Small view of God will cost us an opportunity to be used the way he wants us to big view of God will take us places for him and his kingdom that, that we can never imagine. I want to take you to Stephen's speech in a minute. He's called before the, the government in his day, but I want to look at the events that, that led up to it. You remember Stephen was introduced a couple weeks ago 
There was a problem. The, the Grecian widows weren't getting well fed compared to the Hebraic widow, widows. And the church had to call seven men. Stephen was the first one in that list. It told us he was full of spirit and wisdom. Now here we're going to learn a little more about him. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Now, I want to stop here. We learned earlier that he was full of the Spirit. That means he was controlled by God's Spirit in him. He relied on God for his power. This is a man who is obviously a man of God, right? This is the kind of guy. It's no wonder he's used the way he's used. He sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Those are some of the ways Jesus was described while he was here, right? And it's no coincidence. They were both filled with the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of his believers today. So he's doing all these miracles and opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, These were most likely Jews that had once been held captive by a Roman general, Pompey, and then let go in the area. And they created their own synagogues, their own little groups where they they celebrated their Judaism, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So obviously some of what Stephen's teaching is getting under the skin of these Jews. And we're going to get a hint at what that is in the next passage here. Then they secretly persuaded some men, they're working behind the scenes, to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of, and here's where their charges are. I highlighted their charges against him in green. Blasphemy against Moses. So he's speaking against Moses, who they held very highly. He received the law at Mount Sinai. It was the basis of their their religious system, obviously. And against God. Now, blasphemy was a, a crime worthy of death at this time. This is a big charge. So they go out, they stir up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They spread this word around, get everybody excited against Stephen. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Like we said, that's the the Senate of Israel. Next verse, please. They produced false witnesses. And as we go on, doesn't this sound so much like Jesus' trial? Doesn't it sound so much like what Jesus went through? A lot of these are probably some of the same people even in the Sanhedrin that he's going to stand before. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place. That's the temple and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now it says there were false witnesses. So evidently they were making it sound worse than they, worse than what he was really saying. But you'll see in his own defense, there is a sense in which he's saying, hey, Jesus is better than your temple. That law that you had, it actually pointed to him. You need to move on beyond that to him. But they evidently trumped it up. Next verse. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You talk about a, a tense moment. You're, you're called before the highest leaders in the land. And, and you know you're possibly going to die. And they looked at his face and they realized it looked like an angel. What does that mean? It could mean a lot of different things, but some of what they, what they think is that it, there was a peace about him. His life on the line. He had a peace about him, a boldness, a courage, 
that could only be explained by the Spirit of God. So much so that it showed even in that pressure cooker. They saw it. And the, the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Now you think about right here, Stephen, his life on the line, he's got an option to, to back down, right? He could say, hey, you guys are right. I've gone too far with this. I love my life. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll stop. He, he, he had that opportunity. Instead, he goes on, and we're not going to read it all because it's actually like 50 verses. I'd encourage you to read Acts chapter 7 this week at home to get the full gist. But it's so long. It's like this history of Israel. And you can see a summary of it here. A couple verses, he goes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes through the life of Joseph, Moses, the tabernacle, and the temple. And then he closes with a, a conclusion. And a lot of people have read this. How many of you guys have, have read Acts chapter 7 and ever felt like, why is he going down this, this road? You know, they asked him, really, this is his chance to defend himself, and he's given a history lesson. I don't get what, what his point is. There's actually commentators, one, one named Debilius, he said this. Maybe you'll relate to him if you ever read this passage and scratched your head. He said, the major part of the speech shows no purpose whatever. The most striking feature of this speech is the irrelevance of its main session. I mean, even some of the commentators like, what's he getting at? But as I read it this week and said, God, what is Stephen getting at? Show, show me through the Holy Spirit. And I read other commentators. He does have a very clear point that he's getting at. And, and I want to show you a picture that I think I'm going to humbly present. I think this is some of what Stephen was getting at. And I'll break down these three points as we go through. He was saying to these people as he goes through this history, you guys have made your God way too small. You guys have made your God way too small. You think that your God is limited to working in your temple and through your law and through Moses. You, you've missed how big God is. You've made him way too small. And I want to show you just briefly why, why we think this is. First, I want to talk about the temple. There's a quick summary here. You can look in your Bible if you want. These are just a few of the verses from Acts 7. He says to him in verse 2, and I want you to see if you can discover what all the places in green have in common with me, okay? God appeared to our father Abraham, and maybe you can read the green parts with me, while he was still in Mesopotamia. Verse 9, when Joseph was sold into Egypt, God was with him. Verse 30, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Verse 36, God did miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the desert. Verse 38, God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. What do all those places have in common? They are not Jerusalem. They're not even in Israel. I think part of what he wants them to see is, look, God does not only work in your country, in your city, in your temple. He is omnipresent, and he works anywhere he wants to. He's not limited to your temple. Next one. We'll talk about the law. Or Moses, excuse me. Verse 37. He quotes Moses. This Moses that they lift up so highly, right? And understandably so. God gave him the law. Moses should be revered. He was a prophet of God. But he says, look, God, this is Moses talking in verse 37. He quotes him. God will send you a prophet 
like me from your own people. Who's Moses predicting? Jesus. So Moses himself is predicting that Jesus will come. Verse 39 to 41, their forefathers rejected Moses. So this is Moses, you guys lift up so highly, your forefathers rejected him. You remember the first time he came and they said, eh, we're not following you. They rebelled against him in the desert, made a golden calf while he was up getting the law and asked Aaron to build a golden calf. What, what's the point here? The very Moses that they, they lifted up so highly himself spoke that Jesus would come. And their forefathers actually rejected Moses just like this group rejected Jesus. Saying God is not limited to working through any one person. He, he's bigger than that. He's, he's moving forward. He's not limited to working through Moses. Next major point. Law. Why don't you read with me what the, Stephen called the law that Moses received. Moses received living words to pass on to us. What they had turned the law into was a dead set of rules that they actually added their own traditions to and that for them became their religion. Following those to the T, even the ones they made up, that was their basis of a relationship with God. And Stephen's hinting at the fact that those are not a dead set of facts to try your best to live your life and gain God's favor. Those are living words that remind us that God is not limited to a legalistic adherence to his law. Those, those words were actually, like Paul would later say, given to lead us to Christ. They were living words that looked forward. So you can see back to our picture with the temple law and Moses. He's saying, look, you guys have made your God way too small. He's not limited to the temple. He's not limited to the law. And he's not limited to Moses. He wanted them to have a big view of God that, that was outside and beyond all that, realizing that God is God and their systems were not. So that's a, a quick tour through his sermon. I would encourage you to read it. What does that mean for you and I today? I was thinking about, okay, that's good for them to hear. They needed to hear that. But I believe the Spirit put that in there because you and I need to hear it. And here's what it looks like for us. The temple was a place, right? The law was a method that God used to work with his people for a time. And Moses was a person. Obviously, most of us in here, the temple, the law, and Moses aren't as big a deal as they were to that group. But what I want to process through for a few minutes together as a group is, what places have you and I limited God's work to? Yeah, sometimes we limit it to a weekend service, right? And outside of that, I'm, it's secular time. It's my own time. God, God doesn't work out there. He, he works in here. Used to be, not so much anymore, we had a narrow view of God working in America and we forgot that he works around the world in Africa and China, other continents and countries, I think in some ways, as I have conversations with people, we've actually kind of flip-flopped that these days. I don't know if you've ever had these conversations with people. I have said things like this, so I'm confessing this. It's interesting, we often have conversations about the awesome things God does in Africa or China or India. And we celebrate those, but then we, we tack on this statement at the end like, why isn't he doing those things here? And what I want to say is, 
This, this has convicted me this week, and I hope it convicts all of us. And it went back to what Jesus said about his, his hometown. Remember why he said he couldn't do many miracles when he went back to his hometown? The people didn't believe in him. They didn't have faith. And because of that, he was unable to perform miracles there. And what it makes me think is that we don't believe he can work in this country. We have lost faith to an extent that he wants to work in our country in powerful ways. I I think about it like this. China, it's a communist country. God's working there through his people, lead people to Jesus. India is a polytheistic, multi-God country. God is working there through his body to reach people. Africa is an animistic, superstitious, religious country. God is working there through his people to bring people to faith and do mighty things. If he can work in a communist, animistic, polytheistic Culture, he can work in America. And part of what I want to say the next time I hear that from somebody, when they say, why isn't God doing that here? I want to say, are you praying for it? Are you believing for it? Are you living it? Because if you're not, and if I'm not, that's why we're not seeing it in our sphere. It's not because he doesn't want to work in America. It's not because he's not. I think a lot of times it's because we've lost faith that he is at work in our context here in America. He does awesome things overseas, but he's kind of different over here. Who said that? Who said God's done working in America? This place thing, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir at this church, but it's interesting how some people really begin to get a view that God only works through their church. I remember a prayer walk some of you heard about about a year ago. Six churches came together to do a prayer walk. And we walked 11 miles around Prescott Valley. And one of the things on the list was prayer for other churches. And I ended up walking part of it with a couple guys, one of whom was a 15-year-old. And every time we would walk by another church or have their church name on our list to pray for, he would say, oh, Lord, I know this church preaches a false gospel. They don't love you, Lord. They're they're preaching heresy. And, And, Lord, I pray that you bring them down. After he would pray, I I would know some of these churches and know some of these leaders and know darn well that they are preaching the gospel and they are doing God's work. So I wait till he finished and I say, Lord, bless the leaders of this church. Bless the people of this church. Cause their ministry to flourish. Let people be saved there. And we went through this four or five times. And what became apparent was this 15-year-old was getting it from his dad. His dad was on the prayer walk too. I'm Surprised they were even on a prayer walk with six other churches. They were really convinced that their church was the only one doing things right. I feel like I'm preaching in the choir, but we just need to have a big view that God does his work through all kinds of churches and celebrate what God does through churches in our community. Is it a big church? Celebrate what God's doing there. Is it a small church? Celebrate what God's doing there. They do it differently than us? Celebrate what God's doing there so long as they proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Savior and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think about people. There, there are those who would limit God's work to, to big name people that have podcasts. You know, Francis Chan, Billy Graham, Rick Warren, or limit it to pastors or missionaries and really believe in their heart of hearts that God doesn't want to use me for anything big for his purpose. I think I'd be preaching to the choir there, but I thought about how 
Sometimes even we limit God to working through other people. Sometimes we look at the Bible, how he worked in people's lives in the Bible. And don't you ever have the thought that, wow, I wish he was still working that powerfully today. Why do we think that? Is, is, has he changed? Is he still a God of power and grace on his mission in this world? Doesn't that betray that we really believe in our heart of hearts? He's, he's done working in, in powerful ways sometimes. Or what about if we, we think thoughts like this, like, boy, you know, once, once our kids are out of the house, like this is a crazy season. We wrestle with this sometimes, man. You get so tired by the end of the day, you're like, Man, God could use this so much more powerfully once we have some more energy. And we <laughs> I think moms get that attack from God more than anybody. As I talk to Carolyn and other moms, the, the enemy works on moms because so much of their time and ministry is in the home. The enemy wants to come and say, no, God, God can't use you in this stage of life. You're, you're too busy with your kids. And what God wants to say, no. Those kids are, are your most important disciples. And if you pour yourself into them, raising them up for Jesus, if you connect with other moms that have kids like that, maybe some of whom need Jesus, God can use you right in this season. And what's funny about that is there's probably some busy college kids out there saying, God, once college is done and I just have a family, then, <laughs> then you'll use me. Or once, once I'm past this health problem, once I'm healthy like those other people, but I can tell you, some of the people I've seen God use the most were in some of the most dire circumstances. I know a lady who, as she was dying from brain cancer, and she, she went to, to be with the Lord several years ago. I saw God at work in her more powerfully during those moments than I had at any moment in her life. It's because God, His strength is made perfect in our weakness. She was full of His Spirit, and His Spirit was coming through her in that, that difficult moment. What about when, when my kids are as well behaved as that family's kids or when our marriage doesn't have any more conflict? I can tell you what you think about other people's kids being perfect is not true. If you, or other people's marriages is not true. If you're waiting for your marriage to have no conflict and waiting for your kids to be perfect, you'll wait forever. God uses all of his kids. That's what the Holy Spirit coming was all about. Moses spoke of Jesus who came, died, rose again, ascended, and sent his spirit so that God could work through all people, all his children that believe in him, not, not just some. So don't believe that lie. And then I thought about methods. Methods. And I want to start with a little bit more of an old school one, and then I'll try to get a little bit more relevant. How many of you guys, and I think most of this is dead, if maybe some of it's still out there somewhere, the music debate. Okay, godly people sing the old hymns. Or, no, people really in, in tune with the Spirit, they, they sing the, the new modern stuff, right? I, I thought about this. Th this. This puts things in perspective. Okay, How Great Is Our God? Probably the biggest worship song of the last decade by Chris Tomlin. It was written in 2004. Okay? 89 years before that, in 1913... George Bernard wrote the Old Rugged Cross. So there's 89 years between the Old Rugged Cross, a, a venerated hymn. I love both songs, by the way. 89, 89 years later, How Great Is Our God. Now check this out. 
The old rugged cross was written 134 years after Amazing Grace was written by John Newton. So there's 134 years between Amazing Grace, probably the most venerated hymn of all time, and the old rugged cross, but only 89 years between the old rugged cross and how great is our God. And I just had this thought, like when the old rugged cross came out, were there people saying like, I'm not going to sing the old rugged cross, man. It, this new stuff is kind of weird. I'm sticking with amazing grace. Because it was 134 years later, but we sort of, because we're forward in time, we put those two together and separate it from how great is our God. But the, the point is God is always doing a new thing music-wise, and we must neither, we shouldn't venerate old or new. We just say, hey, God, God does new things all the time. I, I think about the ways we do church. You know, music, message, offering prayer. How many of us think that's the only way to, to do church? And if you change that formula up, boy, this feels awkward. I, I got to go back. This, that's what I'm used to God doing. Our danger is, hey, we've mixed it up a little bit, right? We do prayer, preaching, a meal week. But what if that ever became our idol? What if God ever said to us, hey, I want you to do something different? Would we say, God, no, <laughs> this is how we do it. Now, obviously, prayer and preaching and, and fellowship and all that's important. But the ways we do it, we must always be open to God saying, hey, I want to do this in a new way. Altar calls is another big one that we talked about a lot at the Heights because people always wanted to know, why don't you do an altar call every week? Well, part of the reason was you don't see very many altar calls in the Bible. That was a phenomenon that began in the 1800s. A lot of 1,800 preachers. Nothing wrong with it. God used it. We'll probably have some sometimes here, and we did sometimes there, but God worked before altar calls in the 1800s, bringing many people to himself for centuries, and he, he works today in other ways. It's not the only way to lead someone to Jesus, to have them walk down an aisle, okay? It, it's funny how we, we get attached to methods, Isaiah says God's doing a new thing to his people, and I'd say that today. He's always faithful to his character, faithful to our mission to make disciples. That doesn't change. His character doesn't change. But as a church, as individuals, we need to be open when he says, hey, mix up, mix it up a little bit. This is how we're going to do it now. God is not static. He is dynamic. God is not a, a dead position. He is a living being in motion, and, and we must... Keep that in mind as we walk with him. We got to have a big God. And this is important because I would never want God to say this to me. I would never want him to say it to our church. But this is what Stephen said to those Israelites listening to him. Imagine if I got up here and just went off like this. <laughs> you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Those are both names that God's prophets used in the Old Testament over and over for his people when they didn't follow him. So these would sting a little bit when these people heard this. You're stiff-necked. In other words, you won't allow God to lead you in what he wants to do. You have uncircumcised hearts. Circumcision was a picture of cutting away evil and idolatry and, and all those things. And he's saying, you're allowing that evil and idolatry to remain in your heart. And ears, you, you will not listen to me. You're just like... Your fathers, and this is funny because if you look, if you read this chapter, 
Every other time he talked about their, their ancestors in this chapter, he always said, our fathers. This is like the dad's, dad whose kid just disobeyed, and he says to mom, your kids. <laughs> he changes here. He's like stepping away from them, saying, your fathers. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. I think the core of what he's saying there is you always resist the Holy Spirit. I never want that to be said of me. I never want that to be said of our church. I want us to be characterized by openness to God. Where are you taking me? Where are you taking our church? Where's he taking you as an individual? Do not resist. Now you can bet they they didn't enjoy this little speech from Stephen, right? You can bet they, they didn't savor this. You can go with me to their response. When they heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. Gnashing teeth was an act of anger. They were so frustrated at what Stephen had said. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, and here we're going to see why he took such a bold stand. Why in the world would a young man like Stephen put it all on the line like this? Look at this. He looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God. That, that's the, the glory that keeps God from being able to be seen. The, the glory around God, the, the light. He could not see God. He saw the glory of God. But what else did he see? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Most other times in the Bible when you hear references to Jesus being next to God, you know what it says? Jesus sitting. And I just wish you could get a still frame on this moment in Stephen's life. I think it's cool that Stephen stood up for Jesus. I think it's absolutely mind-blowing that Jesus stood up for Stephen. What a way to to cross the finish line with, with Jesus standing next to the Father. And I imagine that moment where Stephen saw him and maybe their eyes lock. And I think about what Paul said, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. What a fellowship that they must have had there. And I don't think this having his eyes locked on Jesus was a new thing for Stephen. Maybe it wasn't always a vision like this, but I believe this is why Stephen got to this moment in the first place. His eyes were locked on Jesus. He wasn't settling for for mac and cheese that this world has to offer. He was going for the gourmet burger that God wanted him to have. What really mattered, that relationship with Jesus. Jesus stands at the right hand of God. Look, he said, and he says this to the men. Men who don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, by the way. Don't believe he's God. You imagine how this went over. I see heaven open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. That sealed his fate. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. I want to pause there. 
Stoning, I don't know how you picture it, but often they would put someone in a, a pit of some sort where they were lower than everybody else. And we often picture small rocks being tossed at someone. They would put them in that pit and pick up large, heavy boulders to drop on the one they were stoning until he breathed his last. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus had prayed on the cross, Father, receive my spirit. And you'll see more similarities to Jesus. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow, why why does he sound so much like Jesus? It's because he's full of the same spirit, right? He's controlled by the same spirit Jesus was. Forgive these people. Do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And what what I think about this kind of cool is Stephen's name means crown. There's a got two Stephens here. I think that's kind of cool. It means crown. And it was the victor's crown in a race. And I think about what Paul said. You know, I run the race, but only one gets the, the prize, the crown. Stephen had his eye on that crown. He, he wanted that prize for Jesus. He, he wanted to run strong to the finish line. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. I told you a couple of weeks ago that we're going to look at three men who begin to spread the gospel, Stephen, Philip, and Paul. This is Paul when his name was still Saul, as most of you know. You can bet this had an impact on him. Beginning of chapter 8, we're almost done. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. You remember the first time they brought the apostles in, they warned them. The second time they put them in jail, this is the first death. And it, it opened up all, all hell against that early church. A great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. Look what happened. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And you know what they did as they were scattered? Acts 8 verse 4 says they preached the gospel wherever they went. That old statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Stephen is evidence of that. Because he was killed and the church was scattered and took the gospel with them, it began to spread around the kingdom. God wins. It says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And as I think about the, the backfire effect this had as they killed Stephen in an attempt to to squash this and actually spread the gospel. The same thing happens today. How many of you have read about the Iranian pastor who's been sentenced to eight years in prison for allegedly preaching the gospel? Didn't even go on trial. He's got a family. He's, He's been sentenced to prison. I read this on CNN from a Muslim. This is written by a Muslim. Kasim Rashid wrote this. On the mere allegation that American pastor Saeed Abedini evangelized Christianity, I ran through him in front of a member of its revolutionary court, whom many have called a hanging judge. Abedini now faces eight years in prison. Listen to what she writes after that. A Muslim. If Iran's purpose was to silence Abedini, it has failed. 
More people worldwide now know of him, his message of Christianity, his struggle, and his passion than ever would have otherwise. Iran has given Abedini a loudspeaker that he never could have built on his own. Thus, while trying to silence Abedini's message, Iran's religion silences only itself. Same God of Stephen is the God of Saeed, Abedini, and the God of you and I. So as we close, I want to ask us, obviously Stephen had a big view of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He knew Jesus had given it all for him. He knew he was in control. He knew there was a resurrection coming, and that's why he was willing to give it all. What about you and I? How's our view of God today? How's our faith? And this doesn't come in our own power. It comes from being full of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit loves Jesus, loves the Father, and, and he spends his energy bringing glory to Jesus and glory to the Father. So if we're full of the Holy Spirit, it's just the natural outcome. We're going to have a big view of God, but do we? Do we have a small view of God or do we have a big view of God? And the question I wrestle with, I'm wrestling through it. As I read this passage, I'm, I'm so challenged. Like, are we willing to go to the length Stephen did? Are we even willing to be laughed at at a restaurant or in our workplace for that matter? Because we trust Jesus. Well, how many of you saw the movie, We Bought a Zoo? There's one quote in there where the father of the family was talking to his son. And the son's a teenager and was in a dating relationship that wasn't working out so good. And he didn't know if he should go talk to her or sort of scared to go talk to her. And his dad said something to him probably the most powerful line of the movie. He said, you know, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds of just embarrassing bravery. And I promise you something great will come of it. I love that quote in the movie. And I think about Stephen. What one moment of faithfulness led to the spread of the gospel around the world. And could it be that this week you and I will have opportunities like that? One, one moment of faith, one moment of courage to, to speak the name of Jesus, to, to reach out to someone that doesn't know him, to be bold about who we are in Jesus. We never know what kind of effect the faith in that moment will have. If you have a small view of God, we're going to miss out on some of what God wants to do in our lives. If we have a big view of God, He's going to use us to do things for him and his kingdom beyond what we could ever imagine. Lord, I'm so challenged by Stephen. God, I don't think we should feel guilty because we, we live in a place where it's easier to live out your faith. I think we should be challenged, uh, Lord, to ask, are, are we really putting it all out there? Or are we holding back? or fear of mockery or shame of you. Uh, Lord, you chose to put us here. 
That was your choice. How we live here is a choice we must make before you in the power of the Spirit. And, and Lord, I pray that we'd be a group of people that have a big view of you through the Holy Spirit. Uh, God, that we wouldn't limit you to any place or, or method or person with the exception of Jesus Christ and what he, he does and does through his Spirit. Father, thank you for Stephen. What, what an example. And God, I pray that we would be filled with that same spirit so if the time ever did come, we'd be ready to pay that price as well. But I think more likely than not, most of us pay that price in smaller ways on a day-to-day basis. We need to wrestle with if we're even willing to pay those smaller prices. God, I hope we are. Help us. And help us to believe that you can advance your kingdom in mighty ways around the world and here in our community, in our country. You are at work. You're a God on the move. Lord, I pray that even as we, we give to you tonight, it will be in trust for your kingdom. Holy Spirit, challenge us this week. Encourage us with the example of Stephen. In Jesus' name.